Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you, come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy, nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy, your source of health information every Wednesday. You weren't here last Wednesday. Well, inner voice, we took a little time off for the holidays. Okay, I guess you can have a break. Thank you, inner voice. This week, I have on two of my good friends, Dr. Sierra Talbot and Dr. Kanisha Holloman. Dr. Talbot and Holloman are both obstetrics and gynecologist physicians who both did fellowship training in maternal fetal medicine. So they are both super qualified to talk about today's subject, which is black women's health and pregnancy. We will dive into their thoughts on preeclampsia, things they have seen wrong in the healthcare industry, and how black women can be an advocate for themselves during pregnancy and in other ways. Some great information will be shared on this episode. They will be spitting hot fire like Super Mario, so be sure to share this episode with others. Also, follow me on social media at underscore Dr. Randy if you haven't done so already. Now let's go on call with Dr. Sierra Talbot and Dr. Kanisha Holloman. So welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. I have two of my good friends on here today with me, Dr. Kanisha Holloman and Dr. Sierra Talbot. I want to make sure I say that correctly. Dr. Talbot. That's, that's fine, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know I got to mess with you first. But these are two of my good friends, mm-hmm. great OB-GYN doctors and specialists in their field. And we wanted to talk about Black maternal mortality health today. It's a very serious subject, but we're going to keep it light and carefree, but answer a lot of questions that I know a lot of that you have about this um situation has kind of been going on with Black women overall. So before we get started, um, we'll start off with Dr. Talbot. Um, what made you want to become an OB-GYN doctor? <laughs> well, Randy, I actually went into medical school thinking that I was going to be a neonatologist because I wanted to be a pediatrician. However, um, I did my pediatrics rotation and it just wasn't exciting enough for me. I needed, I loved being in the OI. I had already had my general surgery rotation and I kind of wanted a mix of both. And I think based on the rotations I've been through, I wanted some level of continuity of care. So when I got to my OBGYN rotation, I thought it was perfect. I'm one, I'm a woman. Two, I really, I could identify with the problems that the women were coming in. And three, like if you've ever seen a baby being delivered, it's something like magic. So that just roped me in. And really, that's what led me to becoming an OBGYN. Okay, that's what's up. That's cool. What about you, Kanisha? So basic. I see how I get Kanisha. Dr. Holloman. So, no, we're on a first name basis here, so I'm just playing with you. But um kind of like Sierra, I had a different um track that I wanted to pursue when I came to medical school. So I actually wanted to be a plastic surgeon. And I was pretty obsessed with nip tuck growing up. Like I was really Interested in cosmetics, but kind of a different aspect. I really wanted to be a part of like Operation Smile and work with like kids who had craniofacial, um, you know, reconstruction and so, and like kind of travel around the world and do that. And while that sounded great, it wasn't until I did like I shadowed in one of the plastic surgery um, craniofacial clinics, like after they have repair. And it was just really like a go in, hey, how you doing? Good, bye. And so for me, it was also that missing piece of wanting the continuity of care. So I always tell people OB chose me 
Um, specifically like maternal fetal medicine chose me. I did, I wasn't necessarily looking for it. If anything, I was trying to fight the calling. Um, but it was like every patient that I would encounter on my rotations, I would identify with them. Like any, if, whether it was medicine, whether it was psych, whether it was surgery, if there was a woman patient who had women health issues, women's health issues, I gravitated towards that person. And of course I like living on the edge of chaos. So for me, <laughs> Being an OB, that was never like being a generalist was really not what I ever really wanted to do. I was always drawn to like the complexity and the pathophysiology. And like the first time I saw a baby get operated on inside of the uterus, it's like, come on. That was amazing. I had never seen anything like that before. So that is why I eventually I ended up choosing uh, maternal fetal medicine. Okay. Man, let's give it up for all this black girl magic on here. This is why I had to wear my melanin all day, every day t-shirt for this episode because I knew I have all this black woman magic on here. Y'all can get that on my website. Shameless little plug right there. But y'all both kind of mentioned <laughs> about y'all having um, specialties as far as um, maternal for t- maternal fetal medicine. What goes into the training for that? So you want me to do this one? Okay. So for maternal fetal medicine, one, you, of course, you go to undergrad and then you go to medical school. And then we did a general, excuse me, OBGYN residency, which is four years. And that was followed by a maternal fetal medicine fellowship. That was three years. Mm hmm. Okay. Same. Yeah. I mean, for me, med school was about five years because I did a year out of research. So for some people too, just for people who are interested in medicine and listening to this podcast, there's not one size fits all. There's some people who have complete careers that are separate before they go into medicine. I had people in my med school class that were lawyers who were actively still practicing law while they were going to medical school. So there's always a different track, but like Dr. Talbot said, it's about seven years postgraduate training after you finish medical school to do that. And if you wanted to do like fetal intervention, it's like another two years after MFM. So what kind of things did y'all learn in maternal fetal medicine that kind of separates y'all apart from a regular ob physician? So basically with with MFM, because I think that's something that's hard for patients to really understand is like, what's the difference between an MFM versus a regular OBGYN, right? Which is nothing regular about them. They do so many things. It's almost kind of like you have an internal medicine doctor that kind of knows a lot about a lot of different things. But when it comes to MFM, we really specialize into more of the medical aspect of OBGYN. So the complex, like the diabetes, the hypertension, um, the lupus, the chronic kidney disease, heart disease in moms, but we also take care of the baby as well. So whether that's fetal growth restriction or the baby not growing as big or and trying to figure out why, is it a maternal issue? Is it something intrinsic to the pregnancy? So we're managing. So I also, I have like a patients, I have patients that I see myself in clinic that are my specific patients. Um, that I follow their pregnancy and may even do their deliveries. That's something called like total care MFM, which is a little bit on the rare end, but you kind of essentially do two jobs. You do the OBGYN's job and you do the MFM's job. But most MFMs are going to be consultants only. So they essentially are managing along with a general OBGYN who will send us, we read the ultrasounds, pretty much anybody who ever gets pregnant, you're going to probably encounter us because we're the ones that are typically reading like your anatomy scans and all your ultrasounds, even if it's a normal pregnancy. But ideally, we take care of the high risk or complicated pregnancies, whether it's maternal or fetal reasons. Yeah, ditto. Covered it all. So if anyone knows what they're talking about on this subject, it is these two women right here with all the training that they've done. So they know about all the complications. So I just wanted to give you all a background of how they know what they know what they're talking about as we get into this topic right now. So we're here to talk about Black maternal mortality. So what are some of the common conditions that Black women have that increase their risk during pregnancy? So the most common complications that Black women face before before pregnancy, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, before yeah. pregnancy. Before pregnancy is comorbidities, mainly. Comorbidities stands for like pre-existing medical conditions, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, 
obesity, being overweight, and having these underlying medical issues before you become pregnant increases the risk of having complications that can occur during and after pregnancy. Correct. And and non-Hispanic Black, to be specific, whenever you're looking at literature, they're always going to say non-Hispanic Black or Black women. They're three to four times more likely to you know, have some type of maternal morbidity, mortality. And I think the biggest thing is breaking down what does that actually mean? Mortality, of course, mortality, death, right? For all sakes and purposes that are related to a pregnancy-related cause, okay? But morbidity is a little bit different. So that's going to be like risk of hemorrhage, right? So another issue that Black women have a, a lot that's very prevalent is uterine fibroids, for example. So if you already have uterine fibroids entering into pregnancy, that's already going to put you at a significant risk for possibly being one of those patients that has to have, that ends up having a hemorrhage, whether it's a C-section or vaginal delivery, and then having to undergo a blood transfusion. So sometimes people don't think that that's, a con- that's considered morbidity. Um, other things that kind of like the CDC will lay out, eclampsia, you know, um, some type of like heart failure, pulmonary edema, things things like this that can be related to whether you had preeclampsia before, which Dr. Talbot mentioned, like having hypertension, that's going to put you at a 20 to 30% chance increased risk that you're going to get preeclampsia in your pregnancy. So there's a whole long list of things such as more like morbidity that black women can experience. And to be honest, we kind of rank high in like most of them. <laughs> See, like I think it was only two or three that we are not ranked top in. And that's a huge pro- problem. And it's, needing to be more of a priority. I mean, I feel like it's the Vogue, I don't want to say Vogue thing to say, but as everyone's like, oh, we need to be about maternal morbidity and mortality and specifically black morbidity and mortality. And I think for people like myself and Dr. Talbot, when we were going up in training, I mean, I had people that say, what is disparities research? Like, why is that even needed? And now you see a complete 360 where like everyone's trying to promote that. But it's like, Let's make sure we're really getting to the issue. Like it's one thing to identify all these things that black women are at increased risk for, but now we really need to focus on real life, realistic solutions. And that's just not on an institutional level. Like when it comes to your hospitals and things like that, it's got, it's, it's policy that needs to be put in place. It's ironing out bias, et cetera, which I feel like there, there are a lot of great places out there that are really trying to take the forefront on this issue. So that's crazy that you that they were saying that just a couple of years ago about why we're doing healthcare disparities and y'all didn't train that long ago. So that's crazy that it was still kind of out there. Yeah, we weren't as I I feel like if it makes sense sometimes and I I don't want to speak for every person of color who comes through who, who who's going through MFM training. But in my personal experience, I just didn't feel like we were very encouraged to do disparities research where I feel like if there's anybody who probably should take this on as a cause, it should be the people that you're taking care of, that you have to walk in the room who look like you, who are suffering from these different things. So, yeah. And I would agree in addressing like, what is the crux of the matter? It's really very complex and multifactorial. So a lot of people see like, oh, black women are three to four times more likely to have an issue in pregnancy or die from pregnancy. Why isn't it such an easy fix? And because it's so multifactorial, there is levels on the patient level, like access to care, transportation, having healthy food, um, being a neighborhood where there is access to a hospital or clinic. And then there are system levels, like in the hospital not only are there, you know, systemic racism in um, hospital level, you need to have providers that are going to advocate and care for you and understand the cultural differences. So they talk about cultural competencies. And then there is legislature level. And, you know, we just recently seen how women are deeply impacted with Roe versus Wade and access to abortion care. And that trickles down to the individual patient and having adverse outcomes. I just wanted to say, I do feel like, and I don't know if Sierra can say if she felt the same way. I I felt like the higher I got up in my ranking, the more comfortable I felt with advocacy. I've always been a very outspoken person with my patient. That's been something said about me since the beginning of when I went into medicine and maybe sometimes to a quote unquote detriment. But I can honestly say like, as an attending or even being a fellow at a place where there was like a lot of diversity, I felt 
like I will go in there and go to bat for my patient for sure. Patients period. But it's just like it hits different when you know and you can see and you can identify the the microaggressions that are leading to this patient or this person having issues. And you may not necessarily even be there for the whole picture. It might even just be a snapshot. But the fact that you can step in and say something and change the course is super important. And I think it's, it's sometimes stressful for us as providers because we kind of feel like we have to be the voice and catch everything, but we're not everywhere. We're not on every level of the hospital. At some point, you got to go home to come back and take care of more people. So just trying to manage that as a, as a new attending is kind of a new reality. So what are some of those microaggressions that you recognize and how do you advocate for patients? Okay. And then sometimes you need to escalate it above, say, the resident. Um, so you talk to the attending directly, but that takes some gumption because you don't want to overstep the resident and then be proven wrong. But sometimes there are instances when you go directly to the attending that the resident does miss something because residents are not without fault. But, you know, that's a risk you take because you can definitely be reprimanded for that. So it, and then microaggressions like nurses, not they may say, oh, you know, nothing's wrong. The patient's fine. You go into the room and the patient really isn't fine. Or the patient's saying the nurse is not listening to my concerns. I'm in pain, not receiving pain medication. So the list goes on and on in regard to different roles that are involved in the health system where microaggressions can occur. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's like, I, f- I feel like I even notice it with, I mean, and this has been in multiple different areas of my training where, you know, you have a black patient come in to the emergency room or to triage and they're like either upset or they felt like they were, you know, not handled right in their transit there. And so it already, they, you know, they, they, they have an attitude, right? So then it becomes this whole way you see that they start to interact with the patient. However, I've noticed a completely different approach. If I have like someone, let's say, who's not of a, of an African-American descent who comes in and is upset and wants to speak to a manager. It's just a different way. I feel like those patients are handled. And I think that's sometimes a hard thing as well. Like I, as a person of color can experience and recognize that difference in how that's happening. But when you sometimes try to point that out in real time, it's like this complete offense. Like, oh my God, are you calling me racist? Are you trying to do? And so I think that's why sometimes it makes us, it's difficult Mm -hmm. to point that out. Like when it's actually happening. Like, I mean, I've had patients that I've seen treated not so nicely and don't let them have a handicap or whatever. And, you know, African-American woman, for example, and it was just the way they were examining her just felt more like they were examining an animal versus the way they were examining an actual human being. And I was a resident at that time. And I was like, you know, on an off service, was there a I can't specifically remember where I was, but I don't remember being like on my service. So it could have been med school. It could have been residency. And I just remember that I felt like such a disgust, not only at what was happening, but the fact that I felt like I was voiceless. Like I felt like I really didn't have a voice at that time to really say how I felt. And so when an opportunity came up to advocate for that patient, I absolutely did. But like, these are just some of the experiences we have as providers that we're seeing it, let alone don't become a patient and have to experience it on that side as well. So it's a lot of subtleties and some things are really not so subtle, but I think it's the subtle things that make it harder to address. Yeah, that's crazy. It seems like as your level of education increases that you gain a certain amount of respect from the healthcare industry and your voice becomes louder and the people that you're working with respect you more when you're trying to advocate for your patients and specifically for your patients who are of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, I definitely right. would agree. So how can um, individuals be an advocate for themselves? Very important question. Um, I'll go ahead and take the lead on that one if you're yeah, okay, Sierra. Fine. But basically, I actually am very much a proponent when I'm talking to patients, like either right before they're about to go to the hospital and deliver, or when I first meet them at that first appointment, as far as if you see something, say something, or if something doesn't feel comfortable to you, speak on it. Um, You know, I work at an institution where there's lots of learners, for example. And so I don't want patients to feel like just because there's a learner there that I have to either be 
subjected to a certain situation if I don't feel comfortable. So I always say, speak up in that moment if you don't feel comfortable. Sometimes they may feel like they're still not heard. You know, we do have a system like my chart. I actually encourage my patients if there's something that's going on and I'm not in the hospital and you feel like you need to pull me in as an advocate for you, message me like something like that. And the nurses have gotten in touch with me before and I've had to like come in. It wasn't necessarily, you know, I was not there. I can't say it was a complete mistreatment, but it's just the feeling that the patients feel like actually I can get a hold of my doctor and she can advocate for me in a moment means the world to them. And sometimes I always tell them like ask for like, what is it called? Patient, family, advocacy. Like the people, whenever you have an issue or a complaint or like something you're not comfortable with, you can always escalate it. And I think it's all Uh about them just knowing who to talk to and what to say to really sound off the alarms if there's a problem. And then also educating their family members, because that's a problem where if they're in the hospital and something's going wrong or they're not feeling well, they may not necessarily be in tune to it. But if they can if they can educate their family members on some of the things to look out for, that just kind of helps broaden the awareness and helps increase their safety. I think it really all lines with empowering the patients. I think a lot of Black patients kind of feel a little bit meek and mild. And that has a long history of like Black people in medicine and the injustices that have occurred and why they feel that way. But I really encourage them to speak up. I, you know, there's no wrong question. There's no wrong statement. And especially when they bring their partners to their visits, I empower the partners the exact same way because when things like she said are going south and you know the patient may not be coherent or be able to speak for themselves I want the partner to be able to speak up on behalf of their partner and their baby so that things are getting done because you see the case with um, the judge daughter at Cedar Sinai if you listen if you've ever listened to the partner's story he was just like he didn't feel empowered to speak up he knew that something was wrong but he didn't know what to say and now he is going across the country as a motivational speaker speaking up and encouraging others to do the same so that what happened with his uh, wife doesn't occur again who unfortunately passed. No, I was just going to say, I think something that we also don't talk a lot about is, yeah, we take care of complicated pregnancies. We take care of, you know, black women, but very rarely does someone sit down and ask us, how have we felt or what have our journeys been when we've tried to either encounter, you know, fertility or like child rearing ourselves. And if you really sit down and have conversations with some of my other colleagues who are African-American women who are MFMs. I mean, there's some of their stories were for you, whether it's just like the complicated pregnancy they had where they felt like they had to like dictate their care while they're in the ICU at a place they train <laughs> or, you know, the stress that it kind of brings up even when you have a conversation with a significant other that you're like considering so for like marriage and all these things and you you wanting to feel like, hey, I have to educate you on this now. Like if we have a kid how are you going to handle this situation? And will you feel comfortable? And these are the things you look out for. And so I think that's a conversation that doesn't happen a lot either. It's like these same anxieties that our patients have, trust and believe. Yeah, we may feel like we know what to ask. We know what to say. We know what to look for. We're going to probably know people at the hospital, but that doesn't make us immune to things happening to us as well. Agreed. Yeah. It's it's a stress that Black women and women in general should not have. And it's just unfortunate, especially when you compare how the U.S. is doing to other countries. There's so much room for improvement, so much advocacy, so much work that needs to be done. So this is less of an issue. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to do is have somebody on here in the future, maybe to talk about their experience as a black woman and who's specifically in healthcare and medicine and how they were treated and how they may have had to advocate for themselves with the training that they have. Sometimes um, we may not say that we're doctors until something may happen. We're just trying to see how people do and observe them at at first and see if anything changes. But when stuff ain't going right, I, I know I want this, this and that, and this is who I am. And that's nice because I'm going to let you know from the door, from the parking lot, you're probably going to know <laughs> because there's just that level of like stress. And I'm, and to be honest, being a patient, 
you know, multiple times before, you always kind of shock yourself because they're always like, doctors are the worst patients. And I was like, actually, I was a pretty doggone good patient. Like, I was really nice to people. But it was also different because I was at a place where I didn't have to say I'm such and such because they knew who I was. Right. But I think Mm -hmm. that because we know the horror stories or we've had friends that have experienced things that if we haven't witnessed them ourselves, it just kind of like whatever benefit that I can get in the situation to make sure I make it out of here. Okay. I'm going to do it. So does that mean the chair needs to know the person on call needs to know my colleague needs to know several backup people need to know, then that's what needs to happen. And I also, and this can be advice even to people going forward. It's really important for you to do that due diligence of like finding that doctor that you really care about when you get an opportunity because we know emergencies can happen. But like I make sure my doctors are either someone I could be that I'm friends with or I have connections with or someone knows and had a good experience with someone. They don't necessarily have to be black because be honest, we're we're pretty rare to find. But if I can, I always try to find someone who either identifies or can take care of me because they've, they've had experience taking care of patients like me before, if that makes sense. And I think that's made the world of difference. Yeah. And just um, adding to finding a doctor you trust. And we understand it's like a privilege to be well networked and be able to find doctors because we know that's not a privilege most people, lay people have. And it's kind of, you can go on the internet, all these doctors come up. How do you know? who to go to, but it's really about, you know, read the profile. Of course, sometimes you can find someone that you identify with by reading some profile, but when you go there, come with questions and ask the hard questions because this is someone you're basically entrusting with your life. So you want to know that they can think on their toes, they can make you feel comfortable with the hard questions and that you genuinely feel that they care about your well-being. Correct. And I've actually, like having learners, like having medical students, I've had them actually sit there for those conversations where my patients are letting me know, Dr. Holloman, I don't feel comfortable, not because necessarily anything has specifically happened in that visit, but just because they read the news, they watch the news, they watch social media, they know what's going on. This is not a population we're dealing with 20 years ago who is like, okay, it is what it is, right? Like, okay, we have a racist experience. It is what it is. You put it over, you put it over there. But now it's like advertised for everyone to see over and over and over again. So there's a large amount of awareness that patients are coming in with now. And I've had my other like medical students sit there and say, you see how this patient is talking to me and the fears that she has. It is a real thing. This is how you can address it and still be an advocate. You know, you don't have to look like me to be an advocate, but you also need to know that this patient needs to feel comfortable to be able to have those tough conversations. Um, And that I also let people know, I don't think there's anything wrong if someone wants to seek me out because I look like them. Nothing is wrong with that. And I don't think we would think that's wrong if someone who was of Hispanic descent or who was Eastern European and they wanted to seek someone out who had a similar background, no one would say anything about it. But we need to ask ourselves the questions of why is it when we have patients who are Black who say, hey, Dr. Holloman, I want a Black pediatrician. Hey, Dr. Holloman, I feel comfortable because you are someone who looks like me. Why is that a problem? Because I feel like when we really get to that, of why that's a problem, then that's when we can really start to like deconstruct some things. <clears throat> How happy are your patients when you walk in and they're a person of color and they see you like, oh, yes, my ninja. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy that you're black. (laughs) Like, how excited do they get seeing y'all? I I think it's probably like a sigh of relief. relief. Someone who I identify with understands my background, where I'm coming from. And it just gives them an extra level of comfort in an already stressful situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had I've had patients that said I've never been taken care of by a black doctor before. And I remember I was in training and like I was black and my attending was black and the medical student was black. And we just like all walked in the room and she started crying because she was just like, I've just never knew what this felt like. And I think that those tears of relief mean something. There means that there's a constant basal stress that we as a people deal with. 
And when you can go in and you can be in your most vulnerable moment, which there's nothing more vulnerable than a woman when she's going through her pregnancy, right? Or going through something like an illness and somebody walks in, looks like you, and there's things you don't even have to say. There's things you don't have to verbally say. There's cues we're going to pick up on because there's a cultural similarity there as well. And so I think that that's really important. But a lot of times it's like, it's a sigh. It's a, I've already researched you, know where you went to school, know where you went to undergrad before I even got here. So yes, I'm here. Like, <laughs> you're just like, okay, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the whole team was black for you one time? Man, I, I would have been crying. Y'all walked in the room too. Y'all probably start singing like spirituals. Wait in the water. Wait, okay, okay. No, but you know what? Yeah, it happens a lot. Like it happens a lot in fellowship for me, not necessarily as much when I was a resident or a medical student, but like, that's why for me, going, especially the fact that I went to a HBCU, I knew what that felt like. And I felt like I went through years of like schooling, trying to get that feeling back. Right. And so mm. I'm not saying I got it a hundred percent back, but it definitely felt great to go to a place that was very diverse and like screamed it from the rooftops like yes attending fellow resident medical students here we are we're here and that was amazing so as we all kind of know it's not that many of us like black physicians so we can't carry this torch by ourselves so what can some of our other counterparts who aren't of color do to better take care of women especially black women um, during their pregnancies. Randy, this is a difficult question. <laughs> I know, I know. I, loaded question. It's a loaded question. I think it requires just awareness, self-awareness. A lot of people, as soon as you point something out, like, hey, did you realize that that patient you said X, Y, Z, because everyone then just becomes defensive. Like instead of just like hearing you out and trying to be better. And I, of course, they do implicit bias training. That's trying to say like there are biases that we don't know about that are not conscious. But being receptive, being an ally. So meaning that if you see something wrong, speak up, you know, when someone is doing something wrong, because when they're more likely to be receptive of it from coming from a colleague that may be the same race as them than hearing it from like potentially a black physician or a black nurse. Cause they're going to like, I'm not, you know, the key, I'm not racist. Like I love, you know, in the <laughs> it spirals. Um, but it's, it's a lot because it requires some introspective and, you know, we all have our biases. So I'm not trying to say that they're you know necessarily wrong for have biases because everyone has them but really kind of being aware that they exist and then being receptive when someone does point it out and be like, you know, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. Or that's something I need to work on is always a start because being, and then recognizing that there is a disparity disparity. Cause sometimes people will be like, there's no disparity. We treat black patients just like we treat white patients. And the research shows that that is not the case. And maybe that may not be you, but I'm sure there's some instance where you may not have treated a black patient in the best manner and you didn't realize it. And that's where it starts. Right. And I think that, like I said, there's institutions. I mean, I definitely felt like at my own institution, you know, they're trying to spearhead those um, efforts and there's, you know, great people doing great work um, in that area as far as diversity Um equity and inclusion, for sure. I think that's actually something we're seeing more on the academic realm where there's positions that are created specifically for that because they know that that's a need. Um, and more than just like a box we need to check. Like, I'm not going to say everyone is genuine about it, but I, I, I am still happy about the fact that I'm at a place where they do, where they are actually trying to really spearhead those efforts. Um I will say that for someone who is like, hey, you know, I know that this black morbidity and mortality thing is like, it's a real, it's a thing. Um, it all just stops with just stopping yourself long enough and listening. So like in my med school, they were very big on like biopsychosocial model. Like that was our thing before it became a thing among 
a lot of other medical schools, that's now kind of the, the thing that everyone does. Like you need to think about your patient and the biological aspect as well as, as well as the psychological and the social. And I think if you can just stop yourself enough to do that and constantly try to keep yourself in that mindset, you're already going to naturally offset some of those things. So there's going to be natural biases that you're going to be like, you know what, let me just stop long enough and say, why was she in a bad mood when she came in today? Why was she stressed out? And she was like, oh, well, she took two buses to get here and we don't let her bring her kids here. So she had to then beg somebody else to watch them for two hours for you to then let her get her. She gets here and then you say, no, I can't see you. You know, so sometimes we just have to stop and pause and put ourselves in the patient's shoes. And I know that's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. We've all been subject to burnout everybody's talking about physician burnout because it's a real thing. And I don't think sometimes other ancillary staff really get it. And I've had to tell and had conversations with some of my like mid-level providers and stuff like that before when they're like, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? Or, oh, we love working with you. My shelf life and a lot of black like physicians, their shelf life by the time they come out of training is already so much more aged. I feel like from just the stress and the years of dealing with macro microaggressions and you know racism and bias and et cetera. So by the time we really get to a place where we're like, my voice can be heard, sometimes we're just tired. Like we're just tired. And so what I would tell people who you're like, look, I don't want to say the wrong thing or anything. Just stop long enough to put yourself. It's just a human thing. It's just a human aspect. Mm-hmm. Everything doesn't have to always be, I need to know every specific thing of that person's culture. But if you go in with humility Like when I had to go to New York and do a rotation and I had to, you know, work with the Orthodox Jewish population, it wasn't anything I was used to. So I probably broke all type of norms that I didn't know about that other people did. And it's just my apologies and like try to you've got to self-educate. I think that's another thing. People are always think I'm not people can't spoon feed you. I mean, social media has already done it enough. But I feel like at some point you need to do some type of education on 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 your patients. Like if I have a patient who's from Laos, there might be specific things culturally to Laos that I might need to ed- educate myself on. And, accept, you know, it's just things like that. Like we can't it can't be a constant thing of like, oh, I didn't know, because getting to a point of like, I don't know, is not acceptable. We live in an information age. If you didn't know, then apologize, go read about it and change your behavior the next time. Right. Preach. I see you over there, church tabernacle sanctuary over there speaking a good word. (laughs) Yeah, but being being black is, (laughs) yes, being black is fun, but it can be tiresome with some aspects when we have to explain a whole bunch of things to uh, different people. Um, During my medical school training, I I don't remember any kind of diversity and inclusion. aspects. We had the history of medicine, of course, all our regular classes, but um, that would have been good to have to basically change the mindset of certain individuals um, during actual medical school, rather than waiting until they get in like their training aspect, trying to catch some things first before it lingers on and that bias keeps lingering on for multiple years. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I don't and I also want to empower people who are watching this who are not of a person of color who are not black. Like my my late colleague who, you know, recently passed Barrest his soul, he was probably one of the number one patient advocates, like and he was a tall, skinny white boy from California. And if my grandmother, if she was alive and he had to take care of her, I knew she was going to be in good hands because of the type of person he is and because he naturally cared about people. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to give this myth out here that you can't be or take care of us if you're not us. I think there's things we naturally may know or be able to pick up on because that is our day to day experience. And let's be honest, being black is not a monolithic experience, right? There's people from the Caribbean, there's people from, you know, Nigeria, Ghana, et cetera. And they have different, different um, aspects of their culture. So there might be things I may not necessarily know, but I don't want people to think that you have to necessarily look like me to be able to take care of me. You just need to be a good person. And that's what you have a Hippocratic oath for that you want to go take care of people. And you just have to be willing to check yourself at the door. Sometimes I have to do it. I have to like, okay, why do I have this emotion right now? Yes, I'm tired. Yes, I want to go home. Yes, I have things I need to do. But like, let me check it because this person is here to see me. Mm -hmm. Great. 
Yeah. And be open and honest with your physician as well, too, about what's going on in your life. Sometimes we can't help you as best we can um, mm -hmm. if you don't let us know certain things. Like you mentioned earlier about talking about the lady who had to catch multiple buses. I think as I progress in my training, I've tried to be not as judgmental and asking why. Like, OK, um, your blood pressure is high. Why aren't you taking your medicine or pretty much instead of telling them you need to take your meds. Well, okay, I haven't been taking my meds because I can't afford this one. This is too high. Like, okay, you have to let me know that so I can find something that may be cheaper for you mm -hmm. at, at this pharmacy. They might have a specific drug list where you can get this for $5 instead of the $100 because we as physicians sometimes don't know what patients may have to pay for. We may just put in an order and then that that's it. We we need that feedback from from the patient side. It's all about creating a safe space, right? So like I have to sometimes tell patients it's a safe space. And I also and I know Sierra maybe especially can probably relate to this. Like the way we may approach approach patients could be different, but we realize we're not for everybody. Like mm -hmm. I, my approach and how I talk to patients, I'm talking to them like I'm talking to you if I'm on the phone. And sometimes there's different ways you may switch it up to meet the patients where they are. But like, I'd like to show I'm a person first. Like I have a personality. Obviously, I have some smarts. I'm here. But like, I try to keep it down to earth so that they can feel like they can really talk to me. And I'll be honest, it wasn't really until like the second to last visit I had with a patient one time. I had already picked up that there were some things going on. And I would kind of been telling my team, like, I know sometimes this person may feel like they're flying off the handle, but let's take a moment and let me tell you that this might be a reason why. But it wasn't until like the second to the last visit before they had to go in that the real truth came out. And it and I asked their permission because I think that's something that patients want to feel like, too. If I confide in you, doctor, that doesn't necessarily mean I want everybody to know. So I just had to be like, is it OK if I really share this part of your history? Because I really feel like it's going to affect how people are going to interact with you in a positive way. And she allowed me and it actually did help her in that case. And I could actually tell how the team, even when she went to the hospital, responded differently to her and with a little bit more compassion. And so sometimes it's just like creating a safe space, just be a person, be normal, please be normal. Let's <laughs> emphasize that. And then, you know, like, and just like ask them and say, Hey, you know, I know this is a conversation we're having. Are you comfortable? And part of that is emotional intelligence. And I really did not realize until I, the older I got, how many people don't have that. And it's really important. Like when you walk in a room and the patient gives you that look, like, I don't want that medical student here because I'm about to tell you something. <laughs> There's just some things you kind of pick up on and you're just like, mm -hmm. go outside. I'm just a little bit like not this patient, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. you could yeah. definitely got to read the room. Yeah, I yeah, just to add on to that, I think, you know, patients that come to see us typically have a problem and they know they have a problem, whether that's with their health or with something's wrong with their baby. So they're always going to be typically at high anxiety first time you see them because they're like, what shoe are you going to drop? What's going on? They, you know, Especially the black patients because they already know that they're at higher risk for something being wrong. So I always try to lighten the mood just to say like, you know, you're in a safe place. We're going to take care of you. We're here to support you. We're going to do everything we can to make sure even – Though you have issue X, Y, Z, we're going to do our best to make this as a successful pregnancy. And you, hopefully you walk out the hospital with healthy mom and healthy baby. And I think like what Kanisha said is key is emotional intelligence. You have to remember that these people are human beings like you. How would I feel if I was in the same situation as my patient? I'd probably be devastated. And you have to understand that. I think that provides you with the empathy and compassion you need to meet your patients of all races where they are. Right. And you have to filter through the levels of bias too. Like, I don't know how many times, you know, we're all guilty of it. Mm -hmm. Patient comes in evaluated by your nurse or your MA or your sonographer. They have whatever exchange they have. They come and sign out to you. This patient in room, da, 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 da. They felt this way. They do this. Da, da. And next thing you know, you're riled up. Like, what? No, they can't talk mm -hmm. to you like that. Da, da, da. So then you go <laughs> and you're outside the room and you do your like, hi, it's Dr. Such and Such. And I promise you nine times out of 10, there is something that I'm probably going to dispel or I'm going to come out of there with a completely different feeling mm -hmm. 
than one of my other mm-hmm. staff. And so I shocked myself. And I actually tell my sonographers, I said, there's moments you might have me have me see me over here having an outburst, right? Like, ah. and I'll go in there and it's like, oh, different, completely different. Because mm-hmm. we are, we're humans and we have to say like, yes, even though we're black physicians, we have biases all the time that we have to check. So we're not above that. It's just that the problem when a lot of times the biases against the people that look like me keep showing up over and over and over and over again. We're making the headlines, right? Because we're the ones that are being taken care of and things are happening to us that are not most favorable. Not to say we can't hurt people, completely not the case. Anytime you have a privilege of medicine and practicing, you have a power that you can, this can go good or this can go bad. But I'm just putting it out there for people who may want want to feel empowered to be like, look, we're not perfect. We just have to realize you have a bias and you have to check it. I just think sometimes this might be grained, ingrained in myself. I won't, I won't speak for everyone a little bit more because I know I'm always on the receiving end of it sometimes, if that makes sense. So I'm always having to check myself. All right. I totally agree. I, I'm trying to do better with like what you mentioned before the staff tell me certain things or when they do kind of trying to go in there with a blank slate. And I do have to interact differently with certain patients. I kind of know how they're at. Um, I might, hey, how's your dog doing? But then I, I'm seeing like a black person, they take off them shoes and see them feet like, hey, you got to put some lotion on these jokers. <laughs> and they know what I mean <laughs> when I say that stuff. I can do that to them because I, I, I build up that rapport. But then sometimes mm-hmm. it may be the opposite and they may they may not like you to joke with them because you you may not be the one for them. Um, one patient, mm-hmm. they said that she didn't want to see me because like, I think she came in for like shoulder pain and I asked her like, oh, how'd you do it? You didn't get in a fight or nothing. And I'm just joking, just having a conversation. But then he said, oh, she said she didn't want to see you anymore because you asked her if she got in a fight. Because like, she did. Like, <laughs> yeah, she lost. That's why she was in there seeing me. So we'll get her some hands. We'll, we'll write a prescription for some hands. <laughs> Take one of these okay, once a day. But I'm gonna be honest. I, I, you know, I love, I love what I do, and I literally probably say that every day mm-hmm. that I love my job, and I'm so glad I went through everything I did to do it. And I'm not gonna lie, I love when I walk in and I see somebody sitting on that t- that table that looks like me. It's not to take away from any of my other patients because I've had amazing experiences with people of all shades, sizes, colors, what have you. But it's something about when I can walk in and that little girl who's like teen pregnancy, who looks like me, cries in my shoulder or says, hey, you really inspired me because I know it hits differently, you know, because they don't see a lot of people that look like you or look like me or look like Sierra. So, you know, it warms a special place in your heart. Right, right. So, Sierra, you kind of mentioned earlier talking about black women, comorbidities, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, obesity. How does that affect the baby overall? Um, So when it comes to having comorbidities, each comorbidity or medical issue can be associated with different adverse outcomes. So for instance, with high blood pressure, sometimes when high blood pressure is not controlled, it can result in issues with how baby is growing and how the placenta is working, things of that nature. Like with diabetes, sometimes if you come into pregnancy and your diabetes is uncontrolled, it can increase your risk of having um, birth defects or having a large baby, having difficulty with a vaginal delivery, potentially needing to have a cesarean delivery. And like, for instance, thyroid disease, if it's uncontrolled, it can increase your risk of having a miscarriage, preeclampsia, which is a high blood pressure disorder, a pregnancy, fetal demise. So it, it varies depending on what the medical issue is. And that's why they created us, to know those <laughs> So um, how prevalent is preeclampsia? Is it more prevalent in the African-American, the Black community, or is it kind of standard across the board? Yes, it is definitely more prevalent in the African-American community, so much so that aspirin has been shown to decrease the risk of preeclampsia, and one of the risk criteria to take aspirin is being African-American. So kind of, yeah, our top, our top things that we face as far as morbidity um, and mortality is going to be like 
hypertensive diseases of pregnancy and cardiovascular disease. Um, and so a lot of those things that lead to those poor outcomes sometimes are modifiable, but right. But as you know, Sierra laid out earlier, it's a very complex situation. Um, yeah, you can be in a food desert and may not have access to the right things to eat that kind of set you up to have, you know, more difficulties in your pregnancy. And we get that. Um, but even in kind of doing some of my own research as often and as frequently as we diagnose hypertension, I still feel like it's one of those things we just, not everyone treats it the same. Not everyone diagnoses it the same. Not everyone follows up with it the same as it should be. And, you know, there's some confusion. I, I wouldn't want to say confusion, but there are there's a big push for hospitals and for different organizations to kind of lay out guidelines for like when you identify it. And I think the scariest part now is probably in the postpartum period, because I feel like postpartum, there's just so many different factors. And that sometimes is what gets us as well as black women. It's like you go go taking care of everybody, taking care of the baby, but not paying attention to the signs and symptoms. And then a lot of times it ends up being like they end up with, with, with a worse you know, worse disease process because they didn't know what to look for. And then coming back to the hospital, they get mixed in with the general population sometimes when they go to the emergency room. And so they those things may not always be identified. So yeah, it's extremely prevalent in, in our population and it's still not optimally managed. So what are some of the symptoms that uh, Black women should look out for post-pregnancy with preeclampsia? Right. Um so I would say for sure headaches. And it's not, I mean, a lot of times when you have a woman who's postpartum, she's going to say, I have a headache because I'm sleep deprived. And I've been up breastfeeding or feeding my baby who's been crying all the time. Um, but it's more of like a persistent headache. Like you take medication, you know, it doesn't seem to go away after you try to take Tylenol. It kind of stays there. It's like a nagging headache. I tell people it's like sometimes it sits at like a two or a three. You can never really get rid of it. Um, other symptoms would be like visual changes, such as like floaters or scotomatas, what we call them, almost looks like trashes in your eye or like blurry vision where you feel like you're not being able to see as well because preeclampsia affects multiple parts of the body. It affects the brain, it affects the kidneys, it affects the liver. Um, other things too, I mean, it's not a part of our diagnostic criteria, but of course, sometimes people notice like rapid swelling or, you know, facial swelling that we can kind of notice a little bit harder now with masks on, but people have kind of a mm -hmm. typical preeclamptic look. Um, and then like pain, we usually say in the right upper part of your belly or kind of in the epigastric region. Um, sometimes people may think it's like just really bad heartburn or they feel this deep ache, but it actually could be a sign that you may be developing preeclampsia. And the issue is that sometimes you may not have had any issues with it in, in the hospital, but all of a sudden you're just like, I don't feel well. And now you have blood pressure problems. So I think that's why some of the institutions I've been at, we've just done universal education on the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia so that they know what to look for and how to correctly access the healthcare system. So if those symptoms tend to linger on, what can that lead a woman to have? Can it lead to her having a possible stroke? Yes. So if you have severe range blood pressures, this is usually what we call 160s in pregnancy over 110s. We have a lower threshold in pregnancy. When you have blood pressures that are that high, it can lead you to stroke. It can lead to, because um, remember I said preeclampsia can affect the kidneys. So it can lead to kidney failure. It can lead to seizures. Um, sometimes you can develop a more aggressive form of severe form of preeclampsia called HELP syndrome, where, you know, your liver enzymes are increasing, your platelets are dropping, your blood cells are kind of lysing open. So that's kind of a severe form um, that you can have. It's, it's pretty rare postpartum, but it has been known to occur. And typically when they're pregnant, the only thing we do at that point is you have to do delivery. But postpartum is one of the things we're constantly monitoring for as well. All right. So let's let's play out a scenario. Let me let me see. All right. So I just delivered my baby. Okay. I delivered my baby. So for those who are just listening to the podcast, like I have my little uh Black Panther dog. He's my baby. It's a baby boy. Oh, he's so cute. So <laughs> I've been checking my uh blood pressure since I had had little Black Panther, little BP. And I've been checking my BP. Oh, that's off the dome. That boy is cold. That boy is cold with that. All right. So 
coming in, my blood pressure has been high, like 160, 170, over 100. Been like that for a week. I've been having a headache too as well. Been urinating more frequently. What kind of treatment would I receive when I come in? I'm assuming I should, should I go to the ER? Should I go to the OB-GYN department since I just delivered? Where should I go and what treatment will I have? Gotcha. You said this is postpartum. Gotcha. This is postpartum. You, you see my baby. This is postpartum. Wow. You see the BP black. <laughs> I can answer this question. Um, so, if you're you're having elevated blood pressures, it's probably best to present to either the ER or to OB triage, which is whatever is the best situation based on the current prenatal care that you're receiving. Because with having, we call that severe range blood pressures or blood pressures greater than the top number being 160 or the bottom number being 105 to 110. And that can be one of the key features of having preeclampsia. And preeclampsia is an issue because one, it can re- result in more severe symptoms. So that's like seizures, heart attacks, stroke. And those are the things I'm sure you want to avoid, especially as having a newborn. So it's best to go be checked out and be told everything is fine than to not be checked out or ignore it and have a bad outcome occur. And I would say if you're within six weeks postpartum, most, if not all, OB triage places will receive you and evaluate you. And they're probably going to be more efficient at getting to the diagnosis than sometimes you're feeding into your general emergency rooms. And I know every hospital is not the same, but um, most of the time that's where you're going to be evaluated if you're six weeks postpartum. And very rare will you be dealing with preeclampsia after that point. Mm -hmm. So do do women usually get treated overnight, like they have to stay, or is it easy just to kind of bring them down acutely and let them go home on something? So we actually have a protocol um, at my institution where, you know, kind of depending on where they fall in the algorithm, we'll decide if they need to get magnesium or not. Um, typically, if they're having some type of neurologic symptoms that are persistent, blood pressure is persistent, et cetera, they may lead them more towards the getting magnesium sulfate. And we typically do that for about 24 hours, and that's to prevent seizures. Um, but usually it's going to be just trying to lower the blood pressure, whether it's with IV medication and then sending that patient home after some form of observation in the hospital with oral medications. Um, if needed, especially if their blood pressures keep persisting. The biggest thing I think we've been trying to do to kind of cut back because postpartum readmissions is kind of like a little bit of a passion of mine was, you know, trying to find that optimal time period to bring patients back. And so we're really good about watching their blood pressure in the hospital, but making sure they, they're having that follow-up appointment, that, that postpartum follow-up appointment, whether it's in the first three, three to seven days, typically earlier, um, that we're evaluating them and making sure that their blood pressures are still okay. Do they need to be on medication to help decrease the chances that they need to bounce back to the hospital? Um, because as you can imagine, that's why we don't have as high postpartum compliance as we need to sometimes because they just get wrapped up with their babies. I think that's improved with telemedicine. And we've also done a lot of telemedicine to kind of help do some of those follow-up blood pressure check um, visits. And I think that that's helped tremendously. So as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask y'all if there were any lasting words of advice or wisdom that you can leave for um, listeners of the podcast, either it be for potential patients or physicians in general. So I'll go with uh, Kanisha first. Um, as far as when it comes to patients, I just want to stress the importance of knowing how important your voice is. And if you feel like you're trying to use it, then trying to put yourself in proximity for someone who's going to help amplify it. And whether that's someone who looks like you or who you might have a family member who's in healthcare or someone who knows how to advocate that, like navigate the healthcare system. Sometimes it's helpful to have those patients, those people come to appointments with you as well, because you may not always know the right questions to ask or even when you go to the hospital. Um, So that would be my advice when it comes to patients. Um, When it comes to providers, I would say that keep your humanity in the forefront and lead with that when you're treating patients, whether they look like you or not. Um, This is an ongoing issue. It's not going to be solved overnight. 
but just knowing that any little change that you can do, whether it's in your own interactions with patients or whether it's joining those committees that they keep emailing you about at the hospital, like your voice is important. And being a physician, a minority physician is very important as well, because there's not a lot of us. Um, so I would say try to get involved, whether it's on the community level, leadership level, like administrative level, and when it comes to treating your patients, because this is an important matter that affects all of us. Um, I would just say, remember that both of you guys are human. I think most patients want to feel heard and seen. And yes, at baseline, they want a doctor that's competent and good at what they do, but they also want a doctor that cares and can meet them where they are. And every single patient deserves the best care. So they ultimately have the best outcome for themselves and their baby. And I think doctors at with their purest intentions want that as well. So it's really about just realizing that you guys are both human. And I think if you express your humanity, for the most part, you will give good care with your underlying medical training. So as always, I always like to end my podcast with Randy's random questions. So I have one random question for you two. Yes, I know you're like, where is this coming from? So you two are both world travelers, have traveled many places together. So where's the... Wherever y'all went that y'all had the most fun? What was the favorite place that y'all went to together? The most fun? Probably, I think Greece. I think Greece was a lot of fun. Um, we went to um, Athens, Mykonos, and to Santorini. And I think that was a pretty fun trip with lots of adventures and stories. Oh, yeah. It was my birthday trip. That was the first year I ever declared I was going to spend every year of my birthday each year in a new country and pandemic had something else to say about it, but that was the first kickoff and it was a blast <laughs> for sure. Are you, you agree? Okay. Young rich physicians. That in, res- in fellowship. Okay. <laughs> that was. Don't limit yourself, Dr. Hines. <laughs> oh man. I'm going to have to go. I might have to set some kind of birthday goal now. And now we're headed to Europe. Whoop, whoop. My birthday's on Friday, and we're going to go to UK. We're going to okay. London next I'll week. I'll make sure to get a gift from y'all in the mail. I'm going to send y'all my address so y'all can send me something. Just a postcard. I'm letting you go. My birthday's in April. Yeah. I just want... I'm not saying... I, I'm just saying I want a postcard. Like, just, hey, like, yeah, we're over here having fun. All right. I'm unselfish. Uh, I'm being an advocate for myself now. How about that? <laughs> I will have, I will think about right. you in April. All right. Next appreciate year. it. <laughs> but thank y'all for being on the podcast, sharing some great information. Um, I'll put y'all travel group Instagram on the podcast if, if y'all want to share it so people can follow y'all and mm-hmm. share y'all experiences together. And um, y'all have done a great service to Black women and keep it up, keep shining and keep doing your best. And we're all happy and proud of y'all. Thanks, Randy. Not the heart. What a great interview. I learned a lot and I hope you did as well. A lot of gems were shared. Please go back and listen. You may have missed one of those. This is definitely an episode worth listening to again. And be sure to share it with others. And don't be afraid to share it on social media too. If you really learned something, share it on social media and go check out my YouTube channel. You can see these two lovely black melanated women on my YouTube channel. Just search for On Call with Dr. Randy on YouTube. You never know what sharing this episode may do for someone else. So share it with others if you like the information. It may save their life. I will be back next week with another episode. Yes, Inner Voice, I will be back next week. I want to say it before you catch me on it saying I'm lying. I'll be back next week with another episode. Be sure to check out my website, drrandymd.com, to learn more about me and the podcast in general. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.